everyone. Welcome to Inside Monster Jam, the official Monster Jam podcast. I'm Scott Jordan, and today we might as well change the name of the show to Conversations with Scott Jordan because my guest today is the legendary Hall of Fame voice of Monster Jam. We welcome virtually to the show Scott Douglas. Scott, welcome to Inside Monster Jam. Thanks for hanging out. Well, thanks for having me. Love what you guys are doing, watching it all the time. It's a, it's, it's a must, must listen or watch for me now every week. Well, I appreciate that, and, and I was a guest on, on your show twice, yep. and now you've done the weekly update, and now you've done Inside Monster Jam, so we're even, and thanks for uh, returning the favor. I do appreciate it. Well, my pleasure, and uh, again, you can feel free anytime you want. Uh, I'm more than happy to come on because you know I love talking about everything Monster Jam. Well, let's, uh, obviously, uh, everyone is familiar with your legendary career as the voice of Monster Jam. You were inducted into the Hall of Fame back in 2020. But I want to focus on on something I have here in studio, which is the Hall of Fame truck that has uh, one side of, of Dennis Anderson and one side of you. So I, I know, you know, f- from a career perspective, we, we never really expect the accolades that we get. But could you have ever possibly imagined that the man holding the microphone phone would end up on a spin master truck a toy truck uh as the voice of monster jam it's gotta be pretty cool well pretty cool that's an understatement of the year but i don't i don't know how to put it Uh, you know i actually just got home yesterday from uh the event i was at and and had had one sitting here that they sent to me and uh you know it's right behind me obviously now Uh, it's just uh i can't tell you what it feels like to see that truck and and but you're back to your original point you don't do this for that, and and honestly, you don't expect it. And um, you know, I've really been—I I know people say humbled. I, I'm just kind of stunned sometimes that in trying to do what I love to do and and make things—I don't know—more exciting to the fans and 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 work as as best I could to make sure people knew how special these drivers and these trucks are. Um, to then be kind of honored like this, this is something that you obviously see, you know, I understand a Gravedigger truck, I understand a Dennis Anderson truck. To see me on there is just stunning, and I don't know how to put it, but I, I can tell you it's a, it's a thrill. And, of course, you know, being a part of the Monster Jam Hall of Fame is a, uh, unbelievable. It's the accomplishment of a lifetime, and luckily I didn't have to retire to do it. I'm still here. Well, it's available right now at the Monster Jam Superstore in a limited quantity, and and I'm I might actually wear this because this might be the closest I ever get to a Hall of Fame ring uh, here at some point. So I might take that over. <laughs> put, that, yeah, put that bad boy uh, on there, Scott. It'll look good on you. <laughs> so, so we um you know every week I get the fans involved here to ask questions. We'll get to that a little later, but I did want to point out that that one of the most popular topics I was getting back from the fans was about Louisville Motor Speedway, which is where you started your career. Um, so. I, I want to know what it was like back then at the inception of Monster Jam, what the sport was like for you back in the early days. Yeah, it, you know, it was, it was a, a real learning experience. You know, they, um, I was the uh, um, the general – at that point, I was the vice president of marketing for Louisville Speedway. I was still doing local radio. And, you know, and we run 50, 60 events at Louisville Speedway. When it was built, it was the ultimate state-of-the-art racetrack. Um uh, Andy Vertries and Kenny Stilter, the local businessmen who built it, spent money that nobody could believe you would spend on a, a local racetrack. And, and the fans were, were hungry for it because Louisville, the city itself, had been without um, its own racetrack for about a good decade or so, if, if my memory serves. So it was really popular. And Andy Vertries was the promoter. 
And Andy just had such a great – he had been a, one of the best figure eight racers ever in Louisville during the days of the old fairground speedway. And so when Andy got into the promotion end of it, uh, a lot of people were kind of surprised. They just thought he was this tough figure eight racer. But Andy had a great vision, and he really understood – Varying the entertainment, you know, having a great weekly racing program, but constantly bringing th- other things in. And it just so happened that TNT was at its headquarters. It was founded in Owensboro, about two hours west of Louisville, but their headquarters had been moved to Louisville, bigger city, obviously, and a lot of, a lot of resources that they could use there. And so he just immediately, I, my recollection is the first meeting with TNT was before the track was even open as we were building it. And so when they brought him in, the stunning thing for me, I had never seen a monster truck. When they came in, first of all, the crowds were the biggest crowds that we had ever had. But then secondly, you you got out there and and you saw how cool this was because it was unlike anything else that we had ever done. And then you just started meeting the people. And and I think that's what, what... brought me in immediately, you know, when you met some of the guys um, and, and, and women who were involved in the sport at that time, just great down-to-earth people, and, you know, they were just trying to see where this was going to go, and I think a lot of people, you know, because a lot of times when you saw a monster truck in 1988, which is when I started, it would be one truck that would come out and crush a car at the end of a tractor pull, and what we did at Louisville Speedway was go with TNT's vision at the time, and, and it was a lot of folks' vision, to make this a competitive sport. Let them race, look for a champion, and, and crown it, you know, have a racing winner that people could get behind and, and have elimination-style racing. And we did it on the figure eight course. And little did we know at the time um, that that would, you know, here 35 years later still be legendary when people go look at it uh, on the Internet with the, the old clips that are up there thanks to the Tough Track show. Um so for me, it was just something cool, something to be involved in. And frankly, um, once they started asking me to do some events, it ended up being perfect because I could do live announcing for TNT and then eventually SRO Pace and, and eventually Feld Entertainment in the wintertime and then still run the racetrack in the summertime. And as things would evolve, when Louisville Speedway closed in 2001, after Kentucky Speedway was built for the, the big NASCAR track up, up near Cincinnati, it, it became um, you know, full-time. And um, luckily for me, I got this, the opportunities to, to do the speed shows and eventually FS1, which, of course, now you guys have, have taken and, and really expanded it to, uh, with the great, great season you had on CNBC. But it was uh, um, something that just kept step-by-step step evolving, and I, I never... I don't think I ever looked ahead. It was just always in the moment, you know? Well, did, did you know, uh, as far as at least a, a technical aspect of, of a truck, did you know anything about the trucks, no. or, or was it something you had to learn on the job as you went? It, 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 it's, yeah, I was learning on the job. And, you know, from my perspective, Scott, and, and I intentionally did it this way. And I say intentionally, I was never a gearhead, a motorhead. I, I didn't, yeah, they may have taken one auto shop class in high school, you know. Um, I didn't race. I came into this, and, and that's why my, my very first racetrack job uh, was back in 1980 in a little track in, in, in outside of Owensboro, Whitesville, Kentucky, called Kentucky, Speed, Kentucky Motor Speedway at the time. And um, a little quarter-mile bull ring track where Daryl Waltrip and Michael Waltrip and the Green Brothers and Jeremy Mayfield, it was just funny that this little track spawned so many of these top NASCAR drivers. And, and that was where Andy Vertries got his first 
uh, taste of promoting. He and his wife Sandy bought that that small track, and Andy came to the radio station I was working at, um, WVJS in Owensboro, where I was on Joe Lowe's morning show, and. He walked in and he was buying advertising time, and and uh, they introduced him to me because I was the sports director there, and he immediately asked if I was interested in becoming the announcer. And what Andy looked at was that all the other racetracks he'd ever been at, the announcer was somebody who just loved it and hung around the pits and and all. He wanted a professional broadcaster to become his track announcer, and I was you know. I'm going to make it 150 bucks a week at the time. So I was interested in anything to make a little extra money. And so it just worked out. But my whole point, and this is my long way of answering your question, that I didn't come into it from the typical inside motorsports background. I came in as a sports journalist, if you will. I was covering the action. And I was always trying to relate it to fans who weren't the I figured the gearheads already got it you know what I mean they understood the engine I tried to always keep things basic uh, you know I didn't need to know every working part I needed to know how much horsepower it had you know the, the weights of the cars the importance of the tires things like that that I could relate to the fans without getting too in the weeds and, and maybe shooting over the heads of young fans especially and that's what I took in the monster jam so I tried to cover the sport from what the fans were seeing, the competition, and of course, this was, you know, we're going back before freestyle was a thing. It was something Dennis did at the end to try and sell t-shirts. Uh, it was all about racing. And so I covered the racing. When it was important, a part breaking or something like that, tried, covered it and explained it in the most basic way that I could. So to me, I just covered it from an outside perspective, and then it, as we started developing pit reporters, that was their job. That's why Leslie Mears is the all-time expert. Les, I don't know a tenth of what Leslie knows about the inner workings of these trucks, and her ability to explain that and not go over everybody's head is is something that makes her special. Um, I always thought it was a complimentary that I didn't need to know that. I needed to call the action and let Leslie or Greg Whitaker or, or Mark Schrader or whoever I was with at the time, Ken Stout, let them get into the weeds a little bit. And I just try to bring excitement to the action and tell the stories of these drivers and these teams that didn't necessarily have to worry about, you know, planetaries and spindles, but it was more about who they were and what made them special. And that's how I, that was my perspective. And so I kind of didn't even go that way. Well, I, I can relate to that 100% because when you hired me, it was as a pit reporter and yeah. I, I didn't know anything about the trucks, but but I learned basic storytelling from you and how to explain in the most generic, general way what's going on behind the scenes to our, to our younger fans. And I evolved from that. And, and guys like Adam Anderson and Neil Elliott, uh, you know, Todd LaDuke helped me with the technical aspect of it, but I didn't know anything about monster trucks when I started. So it, it's very uh, refreshing to me to know that you were in the same boat uh, at the time and it was just really learning how to explain these things to fans and learn and grow uh, on a daily basis but I, when you threw me out to Anaheim and Angel Stadium I was scared to death man I knew nothing about nothing I was the Supercross guy and you had faith in me to to go and talk about these trucks and and, and I learned from some of the best in the business so I, I appreciate hearing that from you uh, I, I do want to talk about Tom Mintz because next year he celebrates 20 years in Max D and you were around from the inception 
of maximum destruction. You were there for for Goldberg and 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 all of Tom's career. When when you first saw Tom Men step onto a racetrack, did you anticipate the type of success that he would go on to have throughout his career? Yes. And and the reason was again, first of all, I, I took my perspective, Scott, uh, in those days that there was no doubt Dennis Anderson was always the man. He had, he he had started. He had become the man. He had gone from one run Anderson to multiple trucks to now the best equipment in the world, winning all the time. Every fan loved Gravedigger and Dennis Anderson. He was bringing a, a lion's share of the fans through the door. And part of my job was to make sure Dennis shined. And Dennis was a star to those fans to the point that where Dennis got comfortable with me is we could do an interview and the, the event could be over. But if Dennis, if Dennis hadn't talked about the nuts and bolts on his truck and the shingles on his roof, I'd extend the interview without setting it up to subtly remind him to go back and say that because he always wanted that in there. So I worked with him really well. At the same time, I had the knowledge Knowledge may not be the right word. I had the perspective that this could never survive if it was just Gravedigger, if it was just Dennis Anderson, and nobody else cared about anybody. And I think that's why a lot of the other drivers appreciated the fact that, yes, Dennis was the megastar, but I spent the same amount of time promoting Dan Evans and Destroyer or Alan Pizzo and Predator and, and because they had to, have, had to have more than one. The bottom line was, though, at that point, when we're talking about with Tom coming in, Dennis was going to win most of the time. All of a sudden, here comes a guy who wasn't just out there to put on a show. He was out there to create the rivalry, what I now call the greatest rivalry in motorsports and have called it that forever. And you could just tell Tom was different. Everything from, from walking on the wing of Monster Patrol to the, to the way his competitive drive, to the way he always... Um, had this determination that he was going to win. And if Dennis would do something, he would try to up it. You know, Dennis would do these crazy freestyles, and the others would freestyle, but they weren't going to go there. Tom was the guy who was going to go there. So, yeah, Tom was never subtle, so he wasn't going to let you think that he was just there to fill out the field. Tom was there to be a headliner from day one, and if, if it meant taking down a legend like Dennis Anderson, well, so be it. And that, well, that rivalry had some years of being very bitter, um, especially during the Goldberg days. And, you know, when I was doing a podcast, I had the, the great um, honor of having both Tom and Dennis on to discuss those days. But, you know, it, it's kind of funny how it's all evolved now and, and to where they're such good friends now to the point that, that – Dennis was even okay that when Kristen decided she wanted to drive, she went to MJU and was trained by Tom Mintz. That that would have never happened 15 years ago. I can guarantee you that. But to answer the question again, and you know me, I get I get telling these stories and and I go all the way around to to bring the button to it. Is that I, I just I can't say there was a seminal moment, but I just know from the first time you saw Tom Mintz, you knew he was different, you knew he was special, and you knew he was going to be a winner. Yeah, you know, I, I love that you said that you had to show everybody else the the, the same you know, attention and appreciation because that's another thing I learned from you going back to watch some of your old broadcasts on on speed was that you were able to if it was a, it was a new driver on his first day driving a monster truck you made that driver interesting you made that driver competitive and it's tough as a broadcaster to uh, you know make sure that everybody is treated on on a level playing field and as a superstar and and I, I take pride in being able to do that when someone 
somebody watches our show on CNBC to know that everybody out there that's driving is a superstar. Is that something that you take pride in as well? Just just leveling the playing field and treating everybody as an even uh, field as far as the driver goes? Yeah, and, and that was also something that, that's also something learned, and, and, and you do it as you go along. I really feel like I, I came into this as a pure, you know, my, my original goals early in life, you know, were to be where, where, where Joe Buck is or where, you know, Vin Scully or Joe Tate or some of these all-time greats on mainstream sports. And that's why I developed my style and career with, with a lot of those influence. Once I got into this, what really helped is, yes, I, I really felt that I could build excitement, call the action, and, and what's happening in front of you. The biggest influence to me, though, in terms of what became more my style, was to be able to incorporate this ability to make try to make each of these people unique and special. And I got to tell you, uh, I didn't look at it that way until I sat down next to Army Armstrong. That was Army's niche, maybe the greatest storyteller of all time with a microphone in his hand. And in a way... What I tried to do, and hopefully I did well, was continue to call the action and bring a legitimacy to the race that you saw or the competition that you were watching while incorporating some of Army's style of being able to tell stories behind the scenes of what fans couldn't see just by watching the truck and about what made Mark Schrader different and special from, from, you know, from another Michael Vodders or somebody like that. And when you built everybody individually and were able to tell people different things uh, that made each driver special or made each team special, you helped their fan base get created. So, yeah, everybody still in those days was walking in, where's Gravedigger, where's Gravedigger? But then all of a sudden, the story of Dan and Lori Evans as a husband and wife team going all around the country and and, uh, going all over the world became cool to a lot of people. And, and now they were bigger, hopefully, because we had not just pushed them to the back. Oh, my gosh, it's all about Gravedigger. Gravedigger was going to get his, and I was going to make sure that it helped him do that. But there's a way to do it so it's not all about one. And I think that's what has allowed us to expand to where we are today, to where there's so many fan bases. And World Finals had a lot to do with this, too, because that's where we started seeing the creation of really – we knew the super fans were out there, but now they had a place to go every year. And so that we could actually come out and, and have all these different groups of, of um, fans. And uh, there could be a base that was just there for the Avenger. And there was, could be a base that was just there for another truck that was out there. And, and El Toro Loco, just name it, take your pick. Uh, that really allowed this, I think, to, to gain even more momentum worldwide. And, and, and it had to be. Um, even as we expanded Gravedigger, there was still only one Dennis Anderson. And in the early days, you know, there were promoters who didn't want other drivers in the truck. And Dennis had to convince them, well, this is how, how it has to work. And then as those drivers developed their own niche, and it helped that he got guys like Pablo Huffaker and, and, and Charlie Pocket and Gary Porter, Randy Brown, guys that, that could carry the ball on their own and drive it like Dennis did. But, man, there was a day when it was so focused on Dennis that, that I really considered it part of my job to not only help Dennis's legend grow, but to make sure that people knew that, you know, there were 12, 14, 16 trucks out here, and they were all special, and every driver was special. And so it, it uh, was part of, the, part of what I felt was the mission of what, what our job was. Yeah, and, and to be in the main event, you need to be 
presented as a main event talent. You need to, you need to be treated yeah. like a main event yeah. talent. So it's in order for somebody to be competitive compared to Dennis Anderson, they need to be presented as they are a threat, as they are that way. So I, I like to do that, you know, as, as well on our television broadcast. I, I do want to say that you have you've garnered so much respect in your career. And and when you look at the, the grand scheme of things, you know, you and I, you know, we, we have to call the, these Monster Jam events where people tune in to hear the sounds of the trucks. They don't tune in to hear our voices. So for you to garner that much respect as the voice of Monster Jam, a sport where people want to just hear the truck sounds and want to hear that horsepower and hear that, that that says a lot to what you brought to the table. And it, and it's still, every time I go out to do one of these broadcasts, it's still, uh, it, it's kind of a, an awe-inspiring thing when I realize what you were able to accomplish. And I hope to accomplish that well. But at the end of the day, we are literally the voice of a sport that people tune in to hear the sounds away from our voices. So it, yeah. talk about that challenge. Well, to it is, that. And, and it's something learned. I, I, you know, I, I think everybody who ever wants to step in front of a camera and grab a microphone has a certain amount of ego. Okay, I get that. But but can you check it and 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 make it not about you? And that's what I I, I learned and, and never did try to make it about me, but learned to, to as, how do I back that down? And what you start to see. I always felt that if I did my job well in building the excitement and telling the stories, that my best moments were going to come when I put my microphone in my pocket and didn't say a word. Because if I set things up, just like you said, then the sounds and the story and everything that people are seeing in front of them is going to take over. And to me, the biggest compliment was if things got set up and the action on the track was, was so good, that the crowd's going crazy without me saying a word. You know, one of the first things I have to tell new hosts is, why are you telling fans to cheer or give it up when they're already standing and screaming? Stop back, stand back and let it happen. I, I think I told somebody, and I'd have to go back and look at it. Maybe I said more than I think I did. But uh, they asked me for the when they were putting together the story that's in the booklet with the Hall of Fame truck uh, about my most memorable moment, uh, what you know, covering this. I still go back to World Finals 11, the one time um, that, the only time that Tom and Dennis met in the absolute World Finals championship race. And I remember literally thinking that I had to, as excited as I was, I had to not say virtually anything. These two guys didn't need an introduction. I'm, I'm guessing I introduced them. But my recollection was, let this happen. Just soak it in. And so I almost became a fan and stepped back rather than calling it. Now, when we got to TV, I, I did a little bit more. But at the because we did it in post back then, not like you guys get to do being right there in the middle of the action, which I'm jealous of, by right. the way. Um, <laughs> but in that live event moment, it was, this is these two. This has nothing to do with Scott Douglas or Mark Schrader or whoever else was up there with me. Just step out of the way. And I felt like I had helped to set that rivalry up for the previous 10 years or 15 years, whatever it was at that point in time. And um, I felt good about the fact that that's a, such a memorable moment without with me saying very little. So you, you brought up Dennis Anderson a, a few times here. Uh, obviously, one of the, the biggest names, if not the biggest name ever in Monster Jam. But I want to talk about his his kids, you Ryan, Adam, Weston, and Kristen. You had a chance to, you know, go up and down the road with Dennis Anderson. You saw his kids grow up. Did you do you ever get any sort of inclination that they would follow in his footsteps and and lead Grave Digger? Yeah, I knew they were coming, and 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 when they 
you know, and as Dennis and I built, you know, a working relationship over the years, you get to know him better and better. And again, like the things we've talked about, trying to be able to tell people more about Dennis than just that. But we would see Ryan and Adam as youngsters. And, and when you really knew it was, you know, as you'd see him around um, as teenagers and, and Dennis was already, you know, beaming and, and when they'd be around, because again, he felt like he was a terrible dad and he wasn't, of course. But his point was that, um, you know, what, what he told me one time was that, you know, Ryan and Adam would be at, with him when he's signing autographs at a pit party, and he'd hear a kid say something to the effect of, of being envious of Ryan and Adam, you know, because Dennis was their dad, and, and Dennis would think, you know, Ryan and Adam are probably envious of you because your dad takes you to the ball game, so he's taking you to Monster Jam, and Dennis couldn't do that. Dennis was building a, a, a you know iconic career. Um, but every chance, but it also made it really special to him when he could spend time with his kids. And so what Dennis did, especially as they grew up, you know, I don't know what your favorite Christmas present was when you were a kid, Scott. I know I was like getting uh, baseball gloves and, 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 you know, maybe a new bowling ball as I got to a teenager was bowling all the time. They would get what we rather refer to for Christmas as bomber race cars. Dennis would go to the junkyard and buy, buy a couple of old, you know, jalopies. And then they at 12, 13, 14, they literally would go out in the fields and, and race and wreck and jump. And they were already being prepared for it. So as soon as any of them could, uh, they were ready to go. But the other thing I think that's important to note, Adam was the trailblazer for the rest of the, for the kids. Adam was not handed the keys to a grave digger. And you know this, Scott. Um, this was Dennis, this was Adam, and this was the key people like Bill Easterly at Feld Motorsports in the fleet department and Keith Speller. They felt it was important that Adam learn from the ground up, but this is what Adam wanted to do, and this is how Dennis wanted him to do it. The first time I saw Adam working, he was a technician. He was a crew guy in Europe, and he was just working on the trucks before he ever drove. And then you'll remember the first truck they put him in was Taz. It wasn't a grave digger. He built it. Without just being, oh, this is this is Dennis's kid. Give him the keys to a grave digger, so that he earned his stripes before he ever got in the seat of a grave digger. And then Ryan had his own identity, but everybody knew Ryan was going to be special. Uh, everybody knows Weston's a phenom, and he's going to be amazing. The 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 one that's got the biggest smile for me is Kristen, because I never saw it coming. Don't even remember her much being around as a kid. And then as I started to know her, you know, I'd pop into the diner or something. Oh, there's Kristen there. I, let, let me let me get the Scott Douglas burger they used to sell there. You know, um, and Scott th- Douglas. all of a sudden, uh, here's Kristen and she wants to drive, you know, and, and Dennis said, she just looked at him one day and said, you never do nothing with me. You always do something with the boys. He said, well, come on out here in the field. And the next thing you know, Kristen's driving and it, it took her a while. I mean, she, you know, the boys have been doing it all their life. Kristen had Kristen had other plans. She was going to college. She was going to do all these other things. And now she starts driving the truck. And so her development was considerably slower than the others. And so one of the maybe, you know, I, I remember a lot of emotion-filled moments over the years. And that's why, to me, another moment when people asked me about it was Dennis's first world racing championship because the boys were with him and because he had he had fallen on his face 
you know, all those early years in racing, you know, getting eliminated in first and second rounds, and, and Tom had dominated everything. So when he finally won the racing championship, he was literally in tears. It was that emotional. Right up there next to it was the interview that that uh, somebody else I'm very proud of, a new Monster Jam host, Christina Moore, did because she she let the spotlight go to Kristen. That moment Kristen won her tour championship this year, and for her to just let all that out, and it's like she finally felt like she's got her place now. She's not just Dennis's daughter or Ryan's sister. She's Kristen Anderson. She's the legitimate superstar gravedigger driver. And that emotion to me was just something so special. And again, but I think with all the kids, um, they've earned their stripes. Yeah, Weston, you know, basically turns, you know, 18, 19, whatever, and he, he's in a gravedigger. But you get that when you look at his background. And everybody's watched him for years, not just on the cool stunts Ryan made him do on, on, on social media. He legitimately, and to this day, is still one of the best mega truck drivers when he gets in, 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 in Bog Hog or King Sling. He's one of the best, and everybody knows it. He's got the best equipment, and he can drive the wheels off of it. He's legit. But they all earned it. They weren't just given it because they were Dennis's kids, I guess is what I'm trying to get to. And, and, I, and, I, and I think that's something Dennis is proud of. He's proud of them, but he's proud that he didn't, didn't pay. Yeah, he opened the doors for them, but they had to earn their way to get where they've got. Yeah, and they still are every yeah. every single time yeah. out. They're still trying to earn earn yeah. their way. Um, uh, my my favorite Christmas present, by the way, for what it was worth, was a Hulk Hogan weight <laughs> set uh, that I got when I was about I eight years that. old. Uh, had had the shirt, the headband, the waist. I thought I was I was going to be the next heavyweight champion of the world. Well, and and Kristen became the first female yeah. series champion ever in Monster Jam history. I know that she has had to, uh, when, when you talk about having to prove themselves and earn their own way, she has had to battle that throughout her career uh, because uh, you know a lot of people on social media are, are, are not kind to all of us. Um, and she's had to battle yep. a lot of criticism of whether she belonged driving Gravedigger. She, she comes out, she proves that. Uh, do you think that Kristen Anderson has, has finally arrived oh, yeah. into the upper echelon of Monster Jam? Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, and it's funny because you and I have had these You've, you've heard these conversations, um, and now people might be um, surprised to know that when there are candidates for Monster Jam University, before they ever see a truck, the first thing they do is audition in front of me, casting director Jen Mahoney, and our PR, uh, uh, Sally Palmieri from, from Feld PR, because that's how important that part, the communication part of it is before driving a truck, to bond with our fans, to tell your stories. Kristen was was very rough at the beginning. And there, she has blossomed there as well to where she, there's no doubt, she's one of the most popular. You can see it in the pit party lines. You can see it with the interactions she has with fans, with the, 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 the way she represents for like St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. She has become one of the faces of Monster Jam. And what, what's great about that is... It's not that same old face. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a new, fresh face. It's not a male face. Um, it, it, it just shows how this sport is really for everyone. Well, and we've been seeing a, a, a surge in second-generation superstars in Monster Jam. So you talk about the Andersons. Uh, Zach Gardner is there. John Zimmer Jr., Nick Pagliarulo, uh, Colt Stevens in there as well. Uh, uh, you know, Do you think that any of them could potentially 
exceed what their dads have accomplished. And 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 what I mean by that is 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 just overall the basis of a career. And when it comes to like Nick Pag, the rule I'm not talking about, you know, being able to to beat his dad, but his his dad and and as well as Jamie Garter, they they've built these independent teams from the ground up. So when I talk about that, I mean, you know, do you feel that that these drivers will be able to really you know, step up to the plate and and get out of that second generation shadow and and really kind of pave the way for their own career and their own names. We talk about the legacy of Dennis, and we've talked about him a lot. But I think you can say that all of the Anderson siblings have all, have done that. They they have their own track records, their own fan bases, and and things like that. While always still paying honor to their dad, um, Adam has more world championships than Dennis does. So, I mean, and, and who knows where Ryan's going to end up or Weston and Kristen are going to end up. So everybody's kind of making their own way. To answer your question, if there are two that jump out at me, and, and you can say um, as great a Hall of Famer as, as, uh, as uh, Mike Fodder Sr. is, his son won a world championship. You know, Mike wasn't able to do that at Boston right. World Finals. I guess where I'm going with that is I, I really think, though, the two that you really could see Exceeding, if you will, uh, you know what their famous fathers were able to do, are, are working together now. John Zimmer Jr. and Zach Garner. Um, as great a career as John Zimmer had, um, he may be better as a mentor and as a crew chief, and he is he may be prouder of blazing this trail for his son than he is of anything he's ever done. Jamie Garner's having a blast out there, but I think another thing that Jamie is proud of is the company that he's built in terms of Monster Jam and being able not just to be a, a performer and a driver himself, and he does a great job, but to be able to put a talent like Cole Venard in a truck and then be able to create the opportunities that he's created for John Zimmer Jr. and for his own son, Zach. So, I, you know, John Zimmer never won a world, world championship, and that's no harm on him. He was still one of the best ever. Um, Maybe Jamie will get a shot. He was certainly competitive at this year's World Finals. But I guess my point is, it will certainly not surprise me, is if at the end of the day, and they look back on their careers, that one of the things they're most proudest of, and I'm talking about Jamie Garner and John Zimmer Sr., is that they developed the opportunity for their sons to become world champions because little John and, and, and Zach both have that, that potential. Uh, there's a couple more questions from me. You, you stepped away from uh, an on-camera role and a television role to go behind the scenes. Now you are heavily involved in the recruiting and the training of new hosts. So if someone out there wants to be a live event host, what are you looking for uh, in a talent? What would it take to get Scott Douglas' attention and bring them into the sport? What's interesting about that in these days, and people may not be aware, one of the reasons I'm in this spot, and, and it, it, it goes to, again, the vision and the leadership of the executives at, at Feld Entertainment and within the, the Monster Jam part of the company, is that um, what we look for is great talent. So there was a day when only people who came into this part of the industry were motorsports people. I kind of broke that mold a little bit. I wasn't a motorsports guy. And maybe that's why I'm, I'm maybe more open to looking wherever. But I, the belief is if if you can bring personality, talent, passion, you got to have natural talent. And, you know, you got to be somebody who can look good on camera. Sorry, that's part of it. Sound great in an arena. Not everybody can do that. Sound great in a stadium. Tell a story. And if you can learn, 
if you can take notes, if you can develop your talents within what we want in the Monster Jam system, we can teach you Monster Jam. We can teach you what that's all about. So what we look for is is great talent, and they come from so many different areas. You know, um, one of our best pit reporters right now, because she works her tail off, was a Disney princess before she came to us, KCG. Um, but she wanted this so badly and worked and developed the craft and spent all, you know, literally followed Leslie Mears from truck to truck and story to story and, and got out there and learned and, and didn't just take it as, okay, I'm just going to stand out here and, and you know, just do the, the minimum and get my paycheck and go home. That's what I'm looking for. I, I, and it's, it's an intangible. But first of all, you gotta, i got to see someone with the drive. they got to have the natural talent. And they've got to be able, they've got to come in with a work ethic. And I can see that pretty early if you're going to work and develop, especially if you really don't have a big motorsports background. Um, now, sometimes you get fortunate. Um, you run into a Ryan Lacoste. And Ryan Lacoste was a huge super fan of Monster Jam growing up his whole life. He's also a very talented broadcaster and was already in the radio business. That was an easy call. Some of the others, yeah, they got talent, but will they have the drive and the determination to become good Monster Jam hosts? We don't hit on every one of them. I mean, we've, you know, it's not easy. And, and if you're not going to go all the way in, if you're just going to come out for a paycheck and the next thing to put on your resume, you're not going to last with this very long. But we've been very fortunate that uh, some people who came from non-motorsports backgrounds have become very, very good Monster Jam hosts. And they bring a different perspective, Scott, and you know this too. Um, they bring other things that maybe I don't see from more of a, a motorsports background. And luckily we allow them as long as it helps our presentation and helps what we're doing. We allow them to bring their talents and maybe a little bit of a unique style into how they present it to the fans. Because at the end of the day, if we are continuing to highlight this amazing sport, make the drivers special to the fans, but make the fans feel special for being there, then they're doing their job. Well, did you know that I was a Disney prince as well? Did you know that? Not only was KCG. Not surprised. I, I, I knew you were JT. I, I was JT, but in my college yeah. years, I was a Disney prince as well. That was before uh, uh, the beard. Obviously, this episode is not brought to you by Just for Men, uh, mustache and beard. I just, I, I'm going all natural here. But uh, yeah, and I was one of those guys didn't have the motorsports background. I was a, I was a, a Supercross fan, a Monster Jam fan as a kid. Uh, I saw the audition on Facebook. And I showed up, I told you my background as an NFL fan, as a WWE fan, and you said, call it like you would call an NFL game. And it was that moment that it clicked for me, and I think that worked to bring a different different perspective than what anybody else may have been doing uh, that particular day. So I appreciate that. We do have a couple fan questions before I let you go. Um, Joshua Blake Wells on Facebook wanted to talk about Louisville Speedway that we've already uh, kind of touched on a little bit. But um, do you feel that's what truly made uh, your commentary career into monster trucks by starting at that particular speedway? I don't know how else I, I, you know, and and again, you know, God lays out different paths for you and you never know how the doors are going to open. I just don't know how um, I ever end up in Monster Jam without Louisville Speedway. That's where it begins for me. That's why I saw them for the first time. That's why I started to fall in love with the sport and, and the uniqueness of it and the talents that were back there in the pits. But it's also where I met the people from TNT at a time when they were expanding and desperate to get more announcers in and then um, saw 
but because I came in with a TV radio background, when they started expanding the Tough Track show, uh, it seemed natural for them to offer me that opportunity. And, you know, for a lot of people, a lot of youngsters who really never saw me, you know, on television or, or doing live events, they go on the Internet, and there's all these Tough Tracks and Speed episodes. It starts with Louisville Speedway. So, yeah, to answer that question, I think it's a simple answer. I don't know how I get here without that first monster truck figure eight race at Louisville Speedway in 1988. All right. And Rich Hoosier, who just passed away in Bigfoot, won that very first race for our little trivia here. And uh, Rich was a great guy. So you just mentioned Bigfoot on a Monster Jam show, Scott? I did. I did. <laughs> and, and, uh, That's why we're pulling back know, the curtain a little bit here. Um, but before, before COVID and my podcast, it never would have yeah. happened. But, but, but it should. You know, by golly, we're all out there. Monster Jam is the gold standard. Monster Jam is the major leagues. Love it. I'm proud of it. But there's a lot of others out there, and hopefully listen, some of those fans of something else will come see us, too. Listen, I'm going to say this. If, if there was ever an opportunity to bring Bigfoot, and, and this may get cut from the show, I don't know, but if there was ever an opportunity for Gravedigger, Bigfoot, and Max D to be on a tour together, you might as well print oh. the money from the factory yeah. we could we could have monopoly money there but um you know who knows if that's yeah, gonna and we've answered this before and i know you don't, you don't want to go down this road too much here like you say make a cut from the show but it's always been business decisions and there yeah. are great people on both sides of this but they're they're just on and, and they're both very successful monster jam and that and that organization it's just never been allowed to to, to merge to where it was in the best interest of both and i get it and and i'm a monster jam guy but I love those guys, and I know none of us are here without Mr. Bob Chandler and Jim Cramer and those guys throwing some big wheels on a truck. I you get gotta, it. You got to have respect for for you know where, where sure respect do. is sure due there. Uh, last question for you, Eli Steele, thirty five on Instagram, wants to know if you can briefly take us through the TV broadcast format throughout the years, such as voiceovers, live recording scripts, etc. You know, now we're going to the events. We're we're in the broadcast yep. booth. Yep. We're calling things live. Um, um, I know it was a little different back back in the day, which surprised me. I've talked to you about that before because it, it seemed very authentic and real in the place. But I know you've kind of gone back and forth. Talk a little bit uh, about that process when you were here. Once they, they once I started doing the television, um, it became really important for me to, and I was considered a compliment when people would come up and, and, and believe that we were doing the shows live and that I was there. The original early shows that were, were, were done for Tough Tracks and for the things that we started doing, even the early uh, years of, of, of speed, um, I wasn't necessarily at the, at the shows. A lot of times I was not at the Tough Tracks shows, and then we started getting me out to them as the, as the program developed. So my entire goal was to make it feel real. Part of the evolution was that there became a determination on people a lot higher up the decision-making process than me that if I was going to be the TV voice and the face for our television broadcast, especially this is the speed days now, the early speed years, that I should be at the events that were being broadcast because we were always, it was basically one speed tour. We went to one event a week. And so that I started going to them. And so for me, once we got back in the studio, the biggest challenge was even though I had just watched it, was to be able to call it and react like I had never seen it before. Because I felt that's what the fans... The fans are watching for the first time. I needed to be where they were when they were watching it. 
And, and, and hopefully I did that well. And, and it, it's a compliment when people, you know, say that, uh, that they, they, thought, they thought I was at the event because we were in this little closet of a studio with a monitor in front of us and just talking about what we saw come up on the screen. Maybe um, the most fun, though, and it happened for the first time when we did the pay-per-view uh, at the first couple of World Finals, was actually being in that broadcast booth and, and, and not doing the live event, being in that booth and just sending it out to the audience to the point that then when we finally did that one standalone in, in 2011 on Speed from Atlanta, that may have been, to me, that's still one of the real highlights for me was to have been with Ken Stout and with Mark Schrader broadcasting all over, everywhere Speed went, but doing it live and, and not sitting in a studio. And, and again, that's why I get that, like I said, that little bit of jealousy. Uh, you and your team and the folks making the decisions have absolutely, in my world, made the right call. Hopefully I did it justice in creating the excitement in a little closet. But I know it was so easy to do sitting there in the Georgia Dome that night because you felt it, you're into it. And I did have that advantage of having felt it before I went in the studio. But you're there right now. And I could just tell. And what, Scott, I, I think you're, you're phenomenal. And you know, I, I, I'm one of your biggest fans. And I'm I appreciate proud of that. But the, the, the real feel for me, or the real emphasis of why this works, was Colt. Colt became a different analyst and commentator when you put him in the event, because that's what he's used to, it's weird being in that little closed booth, and it just made him develop, and whoever works with you in the future, I expect it'll be the same. Yeah, Cole was amazing. I'm, I'm so happy he's driving again. Uh, listen, oh, you yeah, said, yeah. You, you set the bar incredibly high. I am so proud to be uh, a part of carrying on your legacy. So thank you. I know I will see you uh, in November at the Driver's yep. Summit. Uh, can fans catch you anywhere? Any live events coming up that you're going to be at? I'll be working with some hosts. I've got to, you know, uh, it, it frankly is going to get pretty busy. Um, I'm uh, heading to San Juan. Um, you know, um, Santa Domingo's probably coming up. Uh, Arnhem, so the international leg kicks in now. But the biggest part for me in, in what I do um, is going to be what you just talked about, that week we have with all of our hosts. we got some new ones coming in. got some great returning veterans. We're, we're trying to build the strongest team so that all five Monster Jam tours are at the same amazingly high level, not just in what they see on the track, but in how we present it as a host team and audiovisual-wise. So that week of developing that talent uh, down in Florida is huge because once we get to, to January 7th, man, we're, we're, we're rolling, and it's week to week. And, yeah, I'll be all over the place. Don't know the schedule yet, but uh, just to wrap it up, it, it, it is still cool. i got to admit it. I'm standing in the background in Glendale, Arizona, at the last event I went to, watching a fantastic team with Kay Young, with Casey, with Aiden Young. And I'm standing back there, and I'm behind the bike rack. And four or five times, you see people just coming off the pit party right to me because they wanted to, to say hi, and they wanted to, to say, I, I hear all the time, I'm the voice of their childhood. And yeah, that makes me feel old, but it makes me feel good. Um, they, want, they still want to get an autograph. They still want to get a picture. And if anybody acts like that's, that, that's still not uh, something that makes you feel good, well, they're not telling you the truth. Well, listen, I, I always appreciate you. I know we, we've gone way over time, but that's what happens when you get two talkers uh, on the same show <laughs> together. So, uh, Scott, thank you so much for being here, man. I do appreciate it. I uh, appreciate everything you've done for me and my career uh, and my family. I look forward to seeing you next month, man. Yep, yep, looking forward to it, Scott. And again, keep the show going great, and uh, I love, I love uh, listening to it. Absolutely. 
And for our listeners, if you're or watchers, I should say our viewers, if you're watching us on YouTube or monsterjam.com, you can also download us right now on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. Listen to us on your way to work, on your way home, wherever podcasts are available. Scott Douglas, thank you so much, man. What a pleasure it has been. And for all you folks listening and watching, I will see you right here next time on Inside Monster Jam. Monster Jam.